I'm Kimberly Seapal. Today we talk with Brenda McDonald. She's a daughter that became the primary caregiver of her mother. We speak with her about love and loss and how hospice care played a role in a beautiful end of life. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Hi, my friend, Brenda McDonald. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to come talk to me about a subject... um, your lovely mother and the hospice experience she has. You know, throughout my my career with hospice, so many um, people misunderstand what hospice is really about. And so before we start, tell me a little bit about your mom. Oh, I, I love talking about her, as you know. Um, she was just a great lady. Um, from I think from the moment I was born, she told me I was what she prayed for. You know, and that I was wanted. I I think I've heard that from probably in the womb. And she always reinforced that in me every single day. And what a great thing, because a lot of parents don't do that, you know. And she she let me know every day how much I was prayed for and wanted. So your mom is not from... Where is she from? My mom is from a tiny little town on the Mississippi River in southern Illinois. She, a little town of maybe 300 people. The county only has 3,000 people. No stoplights, nothing. Small town, rural. Uh, She was born there. She grew up there. She lived there her entire life. Wow. And did she, was she at home with you throughout your whole childhood? Yes. Well, she worked outside the home, but um, it was a small town. Everybody raised us, you know? Right, right. (laughs) It was, uh, yeah, she was there the whole time. So eventually you grow up and you moved away. I knew I had to get away from that tiny little place. (laughs) (laughs) Even though nobody else seemed to do that, I, I had bigger things in my mind that I wanted to do that was available to me. So I moved, um, I left there and I moved to Brunswick, Georgia and went on the air and radio. Wow. Yeah. It was, it was pretty exciting for that small town river girl. To be on the radio. Yeah. yeah. So tell me what brought you to another similar coastal, not small town. I think we're growing. <laughs> we um, are growing. You, we're neighbors, but we've been longtime friends in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, what brought you here? That's a long story. That was um, an ex-husband who also was in radio. He was a newsman and uh, he got a job here. So we left Georgia and moved to Wilmington. And, and how, then, long, how long have you been in Wilmington? Oh, I don't even want to say too many years. I'm not going to say. Okay. <laughs> many years. This is home for me now. I right. can't I can't imagine living anywhere else. So here you are in Wilmington, North Carolina, and your mom is still in this small town, correct? Yeah. And I, you know, I go back to visit her all the time and, and I'm seeing her. And then my marriage ended, my life changed. I remarried. And uh, then mom began to get sick. She had COPD. And her health just deteriorated over, you know, over a few years. So it was very difficult at that point, being away from her, being halfway across the country, and not being able to see her, but, uh, you know, not as often as I wanted to, and making 
trips back there as her health declined uh, so increased what was the, rapidly. So what was that like? Here you are. Um, how many hours from oh. your mom? Driving, I have no idea. 18 hours, maybe. I mean, it's from the middle of the country to the coast away from her. So, and you know, this is, this is what's happening. You know, we used to, or, you know, my parents, um, uh, they used to live right down the street from their mom and dad. And here our generation is we're moving and we're so, um, so far away sometimes. And it makes it very difficult. You know, I had daily phone calls with her, uh, and I could tell in her voice when, uh, you know, when she wasn't having a good day, when she wasn't feeling good and, uh, but we had daily phone calls and then it became more frequent flights. You know, your mom's back in the hospital. Can you get a flight out? So I would rush to the airport and, you know, get a flight into St. Louis, rent a car, drive 70 miles and, you know, rush to the hospital to see her and she would pull out of it. And then I would do it all over again. And those trips just became much more frequent as time went on. Tell me a little bit about the conversation you had with your mom about possibly taking her from her home and bringing her here. I begged her every time I'd go back, mom, please come to Wilmington and live with me. And she didn't want to do it. I mean, that was her comfort, Kimberly. I mean, her, her cousins were there. Her friends were there. These were lifetime from birth people in her life in that small town. And it was, I think it was probably frightening to her to, uproot all of that and change her life so dramatically. And also, she did not want to be a burden to me. So finally, um, another incident where I was called to get there as quickly as I could, that trip, I was able to convince her that it would be easier for me to move her to Wilmington with me. And so you had to pack up the house. I did. It, It was interesting because she knew she was dying. And she was, she had been giving away photographs and pictures and uh, memorabilia to friends and family members for months, you know, just kind of cleaning things out. But yes, I still had to pack up everything and pack her things up. But I, a funny story, um, when I would, I bought a lot of Rubbermaid containers and shipped things. Mom was always concerned about looking out for me and not inconveniencing me or costing me more money for anything. So we were, before I got hospice involved, she was at my house and she said, when we were having a conversation and she said, my mom, now, first of all, my mom was this tiny little person, five, one, maybe 90 pounds. So we're having this conversation. She said, sissy, one thing I didn't think about was you're going to have to pay to ship my body back to, you know, back home. And I said, no problem. I said, you know, all those Rubbermaid containers I shipped your stuff down here in? I said, I'm going to pack, I'm going to bend your skinny little butt up, seal it with duct tape and ship you back like that. Won't cost me much at all. And we had a big laugh about that because we had, we had such an open relationship about her illness and her dying, even before I got hospice involved. But, and I, I think I'll always remember that story of, of that conversation with her that I was just going to. Well, and Phil, the funeral home director, was a childhood classmate of mine. And um, I actually, I told her, I said, I'll just ship your, your skinny little butt back to Phil. And I said, you won't even be stinking by the time you get there. <laughs> so but that, that might sound morbid to some people to have a conversation like that. But like I said, even before hospice, I was able to talk to her about that. 
but it sort of a healing. It was sort of healing that it was absolutely, and we had a great laugh about it. You know, because I mean, she had a good sense of humor too. I could only imagine. <laughs> I could only imagine. Um, so you, she's here in Wilmington. You're caring for your mom. You're it, there's so many. There's thousands and thousands of people out there that call themselves caregivers, and we're there is this role reversal as um, our parents. Um, have taken care of us and suddenly we're taking care of our parents and and bathing them mm-hmm. and and there's a story I remember you telling me years ago about you bathing your mom mm-hmm. and it was so powerful to me do you look can you the, mind sharing the that first again? time that she she was such an independent person and she always wanted to do everything for herself I got that honestly from her because I'm the same way but it got to the point she just could not bathe herself. It would exhaust her to do that. So I was bathing her one day and she just started crying. And I said, Mama, what's wrong? And she said, I never wanted you to have to do this. You do become, from being the daughter, you become the parent. And I told her, I said, that, that day I told her, I said, you did this for me when I was little. It's just time for me to give it back to you, Mom. And... Um, that's another part of my story that, you know, that is important to me to tell because it is a role reversal. And I think in particular for daughters, um, and, and you, you do become the parent in a lot of cases. But it's probably one of the greatest gifts we could give our parents. I cannot. The last six months of my mom's life were probably the most precious to me. We had very real conversations. One day she looked at me and she said, you know, I was the best mom I knew how to be. And I said, mom, I was the best daughter I knew how to be. And like mothers and daughters, we had some rough spots in my teen years. You know, I hated her. She probably wanted to just (laughs) shoot me. And, you know, normal family dynamic there with a mother and a daughter. But um, for her saying, I was the best mom I knew how to be, you know. Well, it's probably words that that we all want to hear from one another, but sometimes we don't share those things. So she's here in Wilmington. You're taking care of her. Um, I, it it wasn't all fun. No, I mean, it wasn't. It was it was horrific in in many regards. Um, it, in spite of me just saying that it was the best last six months I spent with her, it was. I would get up every morning and I would stand at her bedroom door waiting to see the light come on under the crack of the door to know that she lived through the night. And I would wait to see that light under the crack of the door because that let me know she survived the night. You know, and I had alarms set up by her bed that she could push if she was in distress and just... Um, and I was trying to work full time and do all of that. So I would, I would get up, I would wait for that light to come on. I would run to the, I would get showered, go to the office, come back mid morning, fix her a mid morning snack, fix her lunch, come back mid afternoon. And I'm, I'm working 10 hours a day and trying to do all of that. And, um, at that point, I didn't know about hospice care. I didn't know, I didn't know any help was available to me, you know, to, to get through all of that. So a lot of people that we call H word, um, a lot of people associate um, the H word hospice with death. And I, over the last two decades, have associated the H word with a very colorful, 
um, stories of people living their lives. Um, you know, we in America and a lot of my even friends and close friends, we don't see death as a destination. And sometimes we think it's an option. Um, there's so many misconceptions about hospice. Um, so when, how did you learn about hospice? Um, I, I had just gotten to the office one of those mornings that I was caring for mom at my house and she called me and said, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Well, she had a DNR order. I, you know, I knew all of this, but it was instinct. I called 911 because we had also discussed she wanted to die at home with me. And I don't know where all that knowledge came from with me. It's just, it was just honest discussion with her. And I had envisioned in my mind, I would be sitting on the bed with her, holding her in my house with her dying. But she had a DNR order, everything, because she had made me promise she would never be intubated again ever in her life. What do I do? I call 911. By the time I get to the house, EMS is there. They're taking her out. I follow them to the hospital. By the time... I get there, they've already intubated her. And I was just beside myself because that was a promise I had made to her would never happen again. And she ends up, they, they told me she wouldn't survive. She, you know, maybe had just a few hours. She lived. <laughs> she defied the odds again. And what did you say to your mom? I apologized to her. Bless your soul. I had to apologize to her. And, and you guys, um, you know, this whole push, and we use these like med language words like advanced care planning, advanced directives, and, and we know that um, it's so hard um, to when someone's going through to the hospital through 911. Um, it's so hard. Not where's the paperwork? Where what is exactly? All- and that's what I was doing. I was checking her into the hospital, giving them insurance forms, and doing all this stuff. They intubated mom, and I had to apologize to her for that. So then I talked to her doc, and I say, "You got to take that out." I promised her. He said, "I can't." The emergency room docs did it. I don't have any control anymore. You're in the moment, though, Kimberly, and your your mother is dying. She was my last family member, and. I don't want that to happen. No matter what, I didn't want that to happen so that you have all these conflicting emotions going on and thoughts, and you can't really think at that point. You're so in the moment that of what's going on. I couldn't anyway. I couldn't think clearly. So anyway, she gets out of, out of ICU, put her in a room, and she's just not doing well. And finally, 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 her doctor says, I would like for you to talk to somebody from hospice. And I'm like, was that the what? like, what, what? <laughs> no, no, no. That means she's going to, I knew she was dying. I knew she could die at any second. But to me, that meant maybe I'm making it go faster if oh, I get wow. hospice involved. That was my thinking. And I think that's a lot of the general public's thought process, that if you get hospice involved, they're going to die quicker. Hmm. So anyway, I get, I talked to the lady from hospice, don't even remember who she was. Talked to her and we agreed we were moving mom to the local care center. I drove her over there because I didn't want her to have another ambulance ride. So I drove her over there and I stepped across the threshold in that building and it was like all the stress left my body. She literally, and um, she, she was in such great hands there and so was I. And it changed everything about my thinking. I just immediately knew this was what, the very best was for her. And that's all I wanted. And then I learned so much more. Right. 
And you, for I I believe the first time in a long time, you actually felt like the daughter again. I did. I was able to be her daughter again. They, they, our local hospice gave that back to me. I could be her daughter. And that was such a good feeling for me. So how long was she at the hospice care center? A little over three weeks. Wow. And during that time, um, you know, I, she received care. I, well, first of all, the first three or four days, I stayed there. I slept on the sofa. I Nobody was going to take care of my mom. You can't do it as good as I can. They proved to me they were doing it a whole lot better than I ever dreamed of. She was just comfortable. She looked better. I, I, it was some of the best days she had had in a long time while oh, she wow. was there. And for me, too, because I, I got interaction daily. They took care of me as much as they took care of her. Wow. And so some of the biggest myths about hospice, um, you know, let's take a moment and, and, and better understand, you know, hospice is a 180 day benefit for anyone um, with a Medicare um, benefit. But even those, um, there's, there's for profits, there's non profits. Of course, um, I've always lived in the nonprofit world mission driven um, locally with hospice. And, and so Tell me, tell me some of the things that you learned about hospice that you never knew. First of all, uh, she didn't need a lot of the meds she was on. Hmm. They took her off of a lot of the medication she was on. She was very comfortable, very comfortable. Um, and they, they gave me a lot of knowledge about the dying process and what that journey would be like. Previously, my... Um, experiences with death had all been frightening or sudden tragedies or, you know, just horrible, horrible things. They gave me knowledge to take the fear out of death so that I could watch my mom's dying process and not be afraid of any of it. Not And being able to anticipate things that, that were going to happen physically, mentally with her. Um, and it I, I hesitate to use this, but it made it fun for me a little bit because the fear was gone. And I saw the journey that she was on in those last days. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. And at the end, her, her last breaths was the single most beautiful moment in my entire life. Wow. Why was it so beautiful? Because I wasn't afraid of it. And I saw... From my, because of my spiritual beliefs, I was able, and having such an open mind because of the, the knowledge I had been given from hospice, and my spiritual beliefs, I saw just the most beautiful, for lack of a better word, look on my mom's face. And it, I equate it to birth. And mm -hmm. I, I firmly believe that holding somebody's hand for their last breath is just a gift from God. Hmm. And I, that's the way I finally was able to look at death that because of my beliefs, that it was a gift from God oh, wow. for me to experience that. And it's a gift I can never say thank you to God enough for because it, you were it, there. Cha it changed my life completely in a very positive manner. So you had this um, experience with hospice. And um, you're still involved. Very the, much so. With the local hospice. <laughs> I am. Um, 
for many years now, 17 years, actually. Uh, I think the thing that the reason I wanted to do that, and I think everybody who has that experience immediately wants to give back just as I did. As soon as I got back to Wilmington from her funeral, um, I wanted to get involved. And of course, they know much better than me and said, no, you just need a little bit of time. And I, I did all of their bereavement counseling and everything because I had a lot to deal with with her death. And they helped me through all of that. They also helped me work through past experiences with death that I had never completely uh, dealt with, you know, in a in a positive manner. So I I had to wait a little while to get involved. And yes, since then, I've, I've been as involved as I possibly could be, because I want people to understand that hospice is about living, it's not about dying. And anywhere I can tell my story, I, I want to do that, because I want others to have the experience that I had. So do you want hospice care? Absolutely. Absolutely. With, without a doubt. It, it's in my will. Everybody knows it. My wishes are known. Uh, I do want I do want hospice care. You know, there's there's so many things that we don't really talk about, like our own mortality, our own death. And you say you have advanced care planning. You, I do. So, um, you know, you're single. Correct. No children. No children. <laughs> and, um, and you also lost... Um, the love of your life. I did. My husband um, had a bilateral lung transplant, developed complications, and never came out of the hospital from it. And because of my hospice experiences, I was, even though it was pretty horrific, and, you know, I, I was able to disconnect life support with him with a clear conscience and didn't have to give it a second thought, and um, was able to make his death as beautiful as possible under the circumstances he was under. And his niece, who is closer to my age, uh, she and I are very close friends. So she understands all of that. She understands all of my wishes. She is my healthcare power of attorney. Um, and you have open conversations about absolutely, what? Absolutely. Absolutely. And an open conversation I've also had is that if I get some life limiting illness and, um, and it's terminal, you're going to film it. I want, I oh, want wow. to continue until, till I take my last breath to let people know that it doesn't have to be negative. Uh, I want it to be fun. I want it to be a party for my friends. I want, I want people to know how much I love them. And hopefully I'm doing it now, letting them know how much I love and care for them. But I want to impart that information to other people so they don't go through life the way I did until I learned a different way of dealing with it. You have everything planned. I do. Um, is, this, is this lessons that your mom, the experience of how you saw her end of life, is, is it just imprinted and scored on your heart? That yes. This is something that you, that you want. Absolutely. It's sort of your mission. I really feel like it is. It's a passion of mine now. And, it, you know, I, I get a couple of my friends joke that I'm so comfortable talking about death and dying and my own death and dying. I, I, that's like talking about the sun shining today to me. <laughs> I'm very, very comfortable with it. And I'm not like Dr. Death or anything because it. I smile when I talk about it. It's something that I have planned. I 
have my death planned. Well, and, and the, the interesting thing is, is I believe this is how you normalize that death and dying conversation is it, it, it's, it doesn't have to be this dark and dreary. I mean, it can be lighthearted. And I, I mean, I, I, I've, we've worked together for so many years and, you know, I want my funeral before I die. I want mm-hmm. people to come and see. Me too. Uh, and, and I mean, why are you going to have a party I don't want for flowers. Me? I yeah. want wine. I want a party. And that's the way my husband and I talked about that. Um, at length. So when he died, instead of having just a standard memorial service or a celebration of life, I had a party for him. It cost me a bloody fortune, but (laughs) I did it. You know, we had an open, this was something we had talked about. I had a DJ, I had an open bar. We, you know, we showed a film, films of him, of, you know, photos. And we did speak and we, you know, we, there were a lot of tears, but there was a lot of laughter and And celebration. We had a real, he was somebody to celebrate and we had a real celebration and, you know, tears rolling down our face and, and, you know, laughing at the same time. And it was, it was fun. It was beautiful and it was memorable. And it was the way to celebrate his life and the way he lived his life. So tell me, uh, there's so many caregivers out there. What kind of advice would you give them? How can we help other caregivers who find themselves taking care of a loved one at home that is unaware of resources like hospice? Or how, what kind of advice would you give other caregivers? You know, I don't even know where to begin. I think the thing, though, that I go back to all the time, I was having some anxiety issues and it just didn't feel good. And I went went to my GP and it's like, oh my gosh, he knew I was taking care of my mom. And I think a lot of this comes to um, GPs or gynecologists or any of the, anybody in the medical field. If, if you know somebody's a caregiver, listen to them. You are mentally, physically, emotionally exhausted. And it's all you can do to put one foot in front of the other. And I felt like nobody's listening to me. Nobody cares. In the in the healthcare industry. in the healthcare side, yes. Um, and I didn't I didn't even pursue um, any help because I number one I'm very independent. My mom was very independent. It's like you can't ask. You me. can do it. I can do this. I can be superwoman. I can work ten hours a day, take care of my dying mother, and you know all these other things. Um, that was a big mistake. It, in hindsight, I should have had help. I should have sought it out. I'm a very smart woman. I didn't, I wasn't thinking. I wasn't thinking, you know, are, are there resources out there to help me? And I think we need, um, caregivers are amazing. And um, as a volunteer for our local nonprofit hospice, I remember a lady that I was, she was caring for her mom and her dad. And I, I can spot in their eyes. Exhaustion. The exhaustion. You know, just go sit outside, take a break for 30 minutes. I got this. I got them for you for 30 minutes. You know, the biggest thing is taking care of yourself. And you may have to do that in 10-minute segments, five-minute segments, one-minute segment. But take care of yourself. Because and that's so hard to do. It is hard to do. Because like you said, you, I mean, you didn't know. Um, you're in this and you're, you're just kind of like on a treadmill. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're like the hamster in a wheel almost. And you're just, you're pedaling as fast as you can. And um, you don't, I, I don't think you know how exhausted you are because you're just doing it day after day after day. But I learned uh, after my mom became a patient in our care center here, you know, they 
they gently made me take breaks, you know, and I, they had to gently do that with me. They, they recognized that, that, you know, so, you know, I, I took an afternoon off one day and I, it was spring and I planted stuff in my yard and that was so therapeutic for me. But then I had to hurry up and take a shower and get back because I had trusted her alone with him for like four hours. And it was like, this is a record for me. Um, and they did take much better care of her than I ever thought about doing, you know, but they, they gently made me take that break. And it was one of the most therapeutic days that I had. And, and you feel that hospice played a huge role in that. Oh my gosh. Yes. I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done it. You know, the uh, counselors would come and get me and make me take a walk with them while I'd be sitting there with mom. Cause I didn't leave her side. And we would just take a walk for a few minutes outside and, it got me away from that. And we would just talk, you know, and they helped me work through other issues that I was having. And anyway, it was just, I, I can't say enough good things about our local nonprofit hospice. There's hospices nationally, Correct. worldwide out yes. there. And, and I would say, you know, anyone who's listening, don't let hospice be something that paralyzes you. Call them, um, utilize them. You know, hospice might not be right for everybody, right. but I, I know I want it. Right. Um, I, I wish I had gotten them involved long before I did. It would have, it would have helped my mom, and it would have helped me. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank today. you for having me. I love that you're sitting right in front of me. And <laughs> Brenda, I just have to say, um, over the years, you've been such a, a good friend to me, and you've always been my cheerleader. And I really do appreciate that. And you've always been my spokesperson. <laughs> and anytime I ever needed you, I would drag you and here, tell your story. I love telling my story. I love telling my story. And I'll still be your cheerleader going forward with this. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're and welcome. thanks for sharing your mom's story. It's really interesting how even your mom now is making a difference in people's life and, and what you're doing for um, hospice. If I encourage anyone um, to have hospice or learn more about it, but also there's so many things you can volunteer with hospice and really um, sit by individuals that are facing their end of life and learn so many life lessons that you probably could not learn anywhere else. So thank you so much and good luck with your future hospice duties. You're amazing. And thank you so much for what you do for the local nonprofit hospice here in our community. Thanks for letting me tell my story. You're welcome. I love you. Love you too. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.